Welcome to You Don't Know Vietnam, the show that demystifies Vietnam for global audiences by talking to the creatives, trendsetters and business owners who are taking on the market. Vietnam isn't all rice paddies and buffaloes, you know, as you're about to find out. I'm Ian Payton, co-founder of We Create Content, and on this episode of You Don't Know Vietnam, we're talking to travel writer Joshua Zukas. Josh is the go-to guy when it comes to everything Vietnam. He recently completed the northern chapters for the Lonely Planet Travel Guidebook and frequently appears in the pages of The Economist, CNN, The Independent, Wallpaper and Wired. If there's one foreigner who'd want to ask about experiencing the real Vietnam, it's Josh. Today, he talks about what people overseas misunderstand about Vietnam, the issues with Vietnam's tourism brand, and what business travellers should do to really get to know Vietnam when they visit. In the conversation, we refer to a travel fish long read by Josh called Vietnam Beyond the Stereotype. To read this, visit Josh's website at joshuazukas.com and click on travel. Let's get into this one. Josh Oi. Oi. How are you? Welcome back to Vietnam. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. I'm doing well. It's nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. What have you been up to? Since being back? Um, this time, I've just been enjoying Hanoi. Mm. Um, I don't have my residency anymore, so I'm restricted right. to uh, two weeks visa-free travel. Um, one of those weeks was Tet. I went to the mountains. Um, the second week was spent here in Hanoi. And I'm enjoying every minute of it. Yeah. How does it feel to have your uh, visa privileges revoked? <laughs> <laughs> they weren't revoked. They just expired. <laughs> <laughs> um, it feels fine. Yeah. I think it, 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 it feels right. Yeah. I'm not uh, ready yet to move back to Vietnam kind of mm. permanently. Um, and Daniel always play by the rules. So I think it's fine. You do, don't you? I do. Yeah. And you've got a really long relationship with Vietnam. Um, and I really want to start at the present and what you've been doing in the most recent months because you spent a lot of time the end of last year here. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, for those that don't know, what is it that you do? Okay, right. So, um, I'm a travel writer, first and foremost. Um, and I also um, write about other things that I find interesting. Architecture being one of those things, modern architecture in particular, but heritage architecture a bit as well. Um, but yeah, mainly I kind of operate within the travel sphere. In Vietnam. In Vietnam, yeah. I write almost exclusively about Vietnam. Um, so although I do describe myself as a travel writer, I'm not one of these travel writers that moves between different countries and writes about lots of different places. Mm. Um, I've tried not to be that kind of writer, actually, because um, I'm also a consumer of travel content. And I think you can tell the difference between those writers that move between countries and write about lots of different countries and maybe don't speak the language and haven't spent that much time there and those that live there and can produce more um, insightful content about the about the destination. Yeah, yeah. And I actually joined you on part of a trip last year. Um, you did. In the Northern Mountains. Yep, you did. Um, you were doing the bit... The Northern Mountains chapters, right? For yeah. Lonely Planet? Yeah, that's right. So um, I left Vietnam to, to go back and study in the UK. I was studying um, a master's in sustainable tourism, which I've now finished. Um, 
And as soon as I finished that, I got invited to update some chapters for Lonely Planet. So I had um, Northern Vietnam, Hanoi, and the Central Highlands, right. um, which were three great chapters to update. Lonely Planet is also going through a kind of overhaul at the moment. Um, so it was really nice to be a part of that. They're kind of moving away from recommending lots of restaurants and hotels because they understand that a lot of people are going online for that information now. And it's difficult to keep that up to date, especially in a country like Vietnam. And instead, they're devoting more time to kind of building experiences. So instead of um, writing about a bunch of sites or listing sites in a destination, they're moving towards collecting sites and turning them into experiences. Mm, So readers can um, have a look at the experience and see if it's for them. And then if it's not, you know, they move on to something else. Right. So an example would be like in Dalat, for example, instead of listing all of the heritage buildings, um, it would be like collecting all of the Art Deco buildings in Dalat mm-hmm. and then building like a walking tour for people that are interested in Art Deco architecture in Dalat. Right. Um, so they can spend an afternoon doing that. So the print book is serving a slightly different purpose. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's. I think that they're trying to target the more discerning traveller, um, the kind of traveller that um, isn't satisfied just getting their information off, you know, listicle blog posts and Instagram, um, and yeah, moving in a more insightful direction. Um, so yeah, I'm interested. That will be out later this year. Yeah, <clears throat> that must be everyone's dream, mustn't it? Travel writing for Lonely Planet. <laughs> Was it your dream? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, actually. Um, and yeah, so uh, it's definitely a privilege. Um, you know, it's uh, I'm a freelance travel writer, which is why I can write for Lonely Planet and other publications as well. Um, so with that comes a certain amount of instability. But on the whole, yeah, it's a, it's a good job. Mm-hmm. And... They commissioned you to do the North, um, mostly because you're quite an expert in the North. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. So I first, when I first came to Vietnam, I lived in Hoi in central Vietnam. And um, I spent a couple of years there, kind of on and off. I spent a year there and then I went back to the UK to study. And then I was kind of between the UK and Vietnam for a while, between the UK and Hoi for a while. Um, this was my first degree. But then when I finished, I then moved to Hanoi and have spent much more time in Hanoi than anywhere else. So I've been living in Hanoi for about 10 years. And why is that? Why Hanoi in the north? Yeah, that's a good question. And one that I get a lot, actually. Perhaps you do as well. I do, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Especially from a business point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there are a few reasons for it. One is that I wanted to live in a big city. And I wanted to live in one of the two big cities of Vietnam, so Hanoi or Saigon. And I prefer living in Hanoi and visiting Saigon rather than the other way around. I I prefer the atmosphere here. Um, I like the architecture here. I prefer the food as well. So I think that that is a big part of it. Um, But it's also because I work in travel and tourism. And for me... Although I think the whole of the country has something to offer, I'm more interested in what the North has to offer in terms of um, its coastline, but more in terms of the mountains um, and uh, the incredible cultures that 
that are there. Mm. Which mountains? All of them. Mm. <laughs> and you've literally done them all, right? Um, yeah, I have visited, um, I think, every province in northern Vietnam. Mm. Um, there are still probably pockets that I haven't been to. But yeah, I say I have a pretty good sense of the northern mountains of Vietnam. And the people that live within them. Yeah, that too. And the, the different ethnic groups, which I find very interesting. Because I remember we were... You love an itinerary, don't you? I do. And we were planning a trip for the Northern Mountains and in Hazang, mm. and you were suggesting that we should spend time with a different ethnic minority every night. <laughs> it was such a good idea. We didn't do that trip in the end, but I followed your itinerary, yeah. and it was the best. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's actually a trip that I did with my sister in 2018, I think, my mm. sister and her husband. Um, and yeah, that was in Hazang, and we spent four nights. Um, it wasn't kind of like the famed... Hazang loop that everybody does, but it was a a loop of some kind. It was a bit longer. We extended it, um, but uh, yeah, I think that encountering the different ethnic groups is one of the highlights of traveling in northern Vietnam, particularly a province like Hazang. Um, and I think trying to get to grips with the different architecture and the different clothing that these people have, I think, is part of the fun. Um, and also, I think it's important to um, encounter Vietnam and the Vietnamese in that way, to understand that it's a, like, especially in the northern mountains where there are so many ethnic groups and it can kind of be like a kaleidoscopic blur. I think it's nice to be able to um, appreciate that these are different ethnic groups with different histories and different languages and different architecture. Yeah, yeah. Because literally their houses will change, won't they? Yeah. Their clothes will change. Will their food change? Um, that's something that I'm not really an expert on. Um, there, are, there are certainly dishes that are connected with the different ethnic groups. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the food does change. I think as a, as a visitor to Vietnam, it's not that easy to appreciate the difference in cuisine among the different ethnic groups. Mm. Um, but still possible, mm. especially, I think, in the more developed tourism destinations, actually. Um, I noticed on my last trip to Mai Chau, for example, um, where, where, where it's mainly Thai people, um, and they um, have started to put a lot of Thai dishes into the homestay meals that they do mm. there. Mm. Um, and actually, the homestay meal that I had there, she came and she introduced them like that oh really yeah she was like you know so these are more standard you know vietnamese dishes which we find all over vietnam but these are specifically thai ones right right and um, and that was that was really interesting actually and nice. i was able to put that into the guidebook too yeah yeah well that trip that you suggested to me i actually did and then suggested to someone else mm. um, it was that good so i'm looking forward to seeing and reading your uh, your guidebook the mm. whole the complete chapters yeah glad to hear it the north yeah mm -hmm. What do you think is one thing that people misunderstand about Vietnam? I think like a lot of people that haven't been to Vietnam before, they have um, a picture in their heads of what the country is going to be like. And I had that too. Um, the war plays a big part, but there's also the kind of um, agrarian... Um, P 
picturesque landscapes that you imagine. Mm. Um, green rice terraces and buffalo and farmers in conical hats, that kind of thing. Um, and when I came to Vietnam, my first impression of Vietnam was Saigon, which is not that mm. at all. Mm. Um, it was this very, this was a long time ago. This was 15 years ago or something. But even then, Saigon was already a very um, electric kind of city. Um, and the dynamism there was was really palpable. So I think it, I think that's what I didn't fully appreciate about Vietnam before I before I came here was mm. was the energy. Mm. And do you think that's something that is still happening today? Because I mean, that was fifteen years ago. Do you think people are still misunderstanding Vietnam um, about what Vietnam truly is, even today? Yeah, I think that that's true. I think that this happens a lot. Um, I think that there is a kind of orientalist fantasy surrounding Vietnam. And especially when it comes to travel and tourism, there's this idealized image of what the country is, which mm. doesn't really match the reality. What do you mean by orientalist? Um, yeah, so I don't want to um, over intellectualize the conversation, but Orientalism is a term put forward by um, Edward Said in the 70s to describe how the um, West has portrayed and depicted um, the East throughout history. And it ultimately leads to a kind of misalignment between um, Western expectations of the East and uh, the reality of the East. So then it leads to a kind of um, exoticization or um, sometimes feminization um, and even fetishization of um, of Eastern countries. I see. Okay. So I read and really enjoyed your piece about Vietnam beyond the stereotype and perpetuated fallacies. Is that kind of what you were getting at with that piece? Yeah, that's actually exactly what I was getting at. Right. Um, so it's again about this misalignment and I think that people have expectations of what Vietnam is going to be like and then they come and then Vietnam doesn't match those expectations. Mm. I think that this is actually quite problematic when it comes to Vietnam's tourism brand. Mm. Um, like it would with any kind of brand, um, when a product is being communicated in a certain kind of way to consumers and then consumers buy into that product and it doesn't match what they've what's been communicated to them about it mm. um they're often unhappy right so we see this all over the business world it happens everywhere and i think that it happens here too vietnam is constantly or the press in vietnam are constantly talking about um how Vietnam has quite a low return rate of mm. tourists compared to other Southeast Asian countries. It's often compared to Thailand. And its return rate is many times higher. And perhaps this is one reason why. It's because people come and they're not getting what they were promised. Right. What's happening more recently is what academics have referred to as self-Orientalism. And it's when Orientalism has been so pervasive over the over the decades and centuries even that um 
Eastern countries and people in Eastern countries have started to orientalize themselves. And we can see this quite clearly in the tourism industry here. So the tourism tagline of Vietnam, for example, is Vietnam, timeless charm, which um, is a very orientalist kind of um, sentiment. Mm-hmm. And for all the good that I think the um, Vietnam.travel website has done over the past couple of years in terms of like the Vietnam Now campaign, which I talk about in that article, Beyond mm-hmm. the Stereotype, um, for all the, the good that it's done, it still seems to often fall into this trap of portraying a very idealized Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So if you go onto the homepage, for example, the official tourism website of Vietnam, I can promise you that there'll be no images of Hanoi or Saigon there. Right. Um, what, will or, there, what will there be? There'll be beaches and rice paddies and mountains and all of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. They had a very short campaign in 2020 with CNN, which was called um, Why Not Vietnam, mm. where they had a number of videos um, that, were, that were, were shown on CNN, mainly to an American audience, but actually a kind of a global audience. It was shown all over the world. And it showed beautiful images of the countryside and the beaches and the mountains and all of these kinds of things, which are, which are very special in Vietnam. But the videos almost completely ignore the cities. Mm. Now... I think that that's problematic because of first impressions. Most people's first impression of Vietnam is going to be Hanoi or Saigon. Those are the two gateway cities of the country. Um, And that doesn't match the kind of image that's being put out there by the tourism administration. Another argument someone made once about the low return rate in Vietnam was, you know, which really thinking about it now is quite frustrating they kind of said, oh, people come to sort of see, you know, about its 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 history and and sort of remnants from the war and things like that. And, and then they've seen it once and then they leave and don't come back, which is so far from what Vietnam actually has to offer as a destination. Well, yeah, absolutely. What would you say to tourists coming to Vietnam? You probably write about a lot of it in your book, but what else would you say that Vietnam has to offer from north to south and and why is it such um, an untapped I'd say it's still untapped as a tourist destination I think there are a number of reasons for this partly is simply the geography of the country Mm. unfortunately for Vietnam I think the geography of the country really lends itself to tick box tourism Mm. so you move from Hanoi to Saigon or vice versa and you know if you're going north to south, then you know you go you go down to Phong Nha and you take that one, and then you go down to Hue and you take that one. You go to Hoi An and you take that one. I think that countries with different geography, Thailand might be an example, but India perhaps an even better one, um, where you can't move the country, you can't move through the country and and, and tick things off in that easy kind of way, um, and you don't leave the country feeling like you've seen it all. Um, I think that in order for Vietnam to improve its return rate of visitors, I think it would do well to present themed holidays. So Vietnam, for example, is a very good adventure destination and there are some really good adventure um, provinces 
or provinces where you can do lots of venture activities. So there are the caves in Fonnières, for example. Mm. Um, or um, there's climbing in the Kars and Katbao. And there are the mountains in northern Vietnam. And you can really have an adventurous kind of holiday. Mm. Um, but it's also a very interesting foodie destination. Mm. You know, Vietnam has a very rich food culture. And like other countries with a rich food culture, the food is different in different parts of the country. Mm. And that can be central to, to, to an experience right. as you travel through Vietnam. Um, and then there's heritage as well. So Vietnam has a lot of very interesting heritage destinations and a very long history that is reflected in those destinations mm. so again it can be a kind of um, experience built around mm. exploring the, the history and the, the heritage of the country mm. and that might encourage people to return to Vietnam as they change you know if younger destination, if younger, if younger travelers might be coming to Vietnam for all the adventure opportunities, maybe those in their thirties or their forties might be coming back for, to to explore the heritage. Mm, I see. And you mentioned in your article as well about you know um, recognizing and um, appreciating Vietnam's heritage and history, while appreciating and respecting its aspiration as a dynamic country that's rapidly on the move. You know, where do you think Vietnam's going with that in terms of its aspirations? In tourism or in general? In general, I think. And and how will tourists, what will, what will that mean for tourism here? I think that Vietnam and the Vietnamese are really keen to see the country modernize over the next few decades. And you can see that also with the kinds of um, messages that the government is putting out there in terms of where Vietnam is going to be in 2030 or where Vietnam is going to be in 2050. Mm. So it's definitely pursuing that modernization route mm. that South Korea has walked and Japan before that. Mm. Um, I feel like, again, coming back to tourism because or travel and tourism because that's what I know, I think that actually looking at countries like South Korea or Japan would perhaps do do Vietnam some good. Mm. I feel like the image that people have of Vietnam is not one of a very modern country. Um, but I feel like the image that people have of Japan is that. Mm. And when people visit Japan, they are visiting the temples and the shrines and the uh, heritage that the country has to offer. But it's also, you know, the bright lights and the energy of Tokyo mm -hmm. and other Japanese cities. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Japan has a better kind of handle on the image that it's presenting to the right. world. Right. Um, and, you know, tourism in Japan is booming um, and has been booming for a number of years. And I feel like Japan is a country, you know, it's ahead in a lot of ways. But Japan is a country that doesn't shy away from its modern image mm -hmm. when it's trying to present itself as a tourism destination. Mm -hmm. And I think that Vietnam could do the same. Do you think it shies away a little bit then? I think it shies away in a big way. Mm. And the interesting thing is that I don't think it needs to because Vietnam cities are fantastic places. I'm just talking anecdotally now. Maybe you've had the same experience, maybe not, I'm not sure. But the people that really love Vietnam 
come here and 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 they've stayed here to me they don't talk about Halong Bay and Hoi An and the rice paddies or even the mountains they talk about the energy mm. and they talk about the people um and they talk about things like the traffic or the coffee culture or you know mm. all of those sorts of things and those kinds of things are actually found in the cities mm. they're not found in the countryside mm. So I think that Vietnam does shy away from fronting its urban areas in terms of promoting its tourism, its tourism assets. Um, and I don't think it needs to. Mm-hmm. I might be guilty of that because I live in the city, obviously. And it's not until I go up to the mountains and see the golden rice terraces or 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 the, the casts that I then send pictures home. <laughs> Um, but how have you seen Hanoi cities change then? Because for me, in Hanoi, like so much of Hanoi has changed, but also it's still exactly the same. It's kind of strange in that way. You can walk through the old quarter today and some of the streets feel exactly the same as they did 12, 15 years ago. So in what ways are the cities changing? I know they're building out and there's a lot of urban sprawl. There's sort of new satellite cities happening around. There's lots of new sort of infrastructure, shopping malls on the outskirts. But how are you seeing Hanoi's cities change other than that? Mm. Yeah, I think actually it's a good question because I think the most interesting ways in which um, Vietnam cities are changing is actually not to do with the cityscape. It's not to do with the the roads and the buildings. Mm. Um, I actually think it's to do with the people Um, Vietnam is still a relatively young country and these young people flock to the cities, Saigon mainly, but Hanoi to a lesser extent, Um, or Hanoi to a a lesser extent, but it's still significant. Um, And it's the communities that are growing out of that, out of this kind of youth culture. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually the more interesting way in which I've seen Hanoi change in the past 10, 15 years mm. and seen Saigon change as well in the past 10, 15 years. All of these subcultures around their interests, around whatever it might be, if it, it, it could be music, it could be art, it could be architecture. Mm. But all of the subcultures that are building up around this kind of energy that young people have and that they bring to the cities. Mm. I think for me, that's the, that's the most interesting way in which the cities are changing. Mm. And is, does that manifest in terms of like events and, and new spaces and, and what sort of things are you seeing there? I mean, I, I, I'd obviously notice there's there's a lot more really um, well considered brands and design popping up, you know, whether it's the new coffee shops or, and the way that they they brand themselves, the way they serve coffee, the type of coffee they're serving. Um, art studios, design spaces, um, and cocktail bars. I know that's a big thing as well. Mm. How does then it become not just another city with cocktail bars, with cocktails to drink and, and, you know, nightclubs and art spaces to see and, and coffee? Like, how does, what makes it unique, do you think? Well, I don't really have an answer as to how it, how it can't just become another Singapore and, a few decades time. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
But I can say that I don't think that these cities will become like that. Mm. I think that cities that remain unique are cities that give value to their history and their heritage because that's something that can't be replicated. Mm. Um, and different successful cities have done this in, you know, in different ways. Mm. Vietnamese cities can modernize and still respect their roots. Mm. And what I mean by saying respecting their roots is not bulldozing heritage architecture, for example. Mm. Um, and um, not displacing huge, um, not displacing, not, not displacing communities mm. um, in order to build high rises. Mm. I think that as long as um, the city's roots can be respected, I think that I think that Hanoi and Saigon and other big cities in Vietnam mm. will manage to maintain a, their their identity. Because mm. when you said about it's not going to become a Singapore, you mm. know, I, I, the immediate thought I had was, well, that's impossible because <laughs> it's Hanoi, it will never become Singapore, mm. you know, in terms of they're just completely polar opposite places. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, that that means that would mean keeping its 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 roots and and the energy. I think as well mm. is what's important, isn't it? Which is what you touched upon: the young people's energy, everyone's energy, the whole city's energy, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I I think so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that much about Singapore. I wonder if it was a very energetic place in the fifties and the sixties when it was mm. when it was still developing. Probably it was, mm. and now perhaps it feels like it's kind of lost that mm. energy well, somewhat. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I was there last week, and I, I just noticed how there's nothing happening on the street. It's all been swept under, you know, um, into certain areas, buildings, hawker centers. There's no energy mm. happening on the street, which is the first thing I experienced when I got to Hanoi and I loved, um, which no one told me it was going to happen. And actually, it was a really nice surprise for me. Mm. And it's still the same thing as I go through Hanoi today, that same energy mm. of on the street. Another thing that I really like about um, Vietnam is, is, is and Vietnamese people is the hospitality here. Mm. It feels like, everyone's doors open you know and the misconception i think people have about vietnam is that the people aren't as friendly as in other neighboring regions mm. um, such as thailand the land of smiles mm. and i call bullshit on that every time mm. i feel like the vietnamese are as if not more welcoming than anyone else in the world Mm. Um, you just have to dig a little bit deeper and, and like nurture a bit of a relationship. And, yeah. And, um, I think I, I think I would agree with that. I feel like hospitality is a lot more nuanced than friendliness. Right. And I think, I mean, it's easy for us to say because we've been here for so long, right? But my feeling of Vietnam is that. The re I think one of the reasons why I really like Vietnam compared to, I mean, you brought up Thailand, so let's use Thailand as an example, is that I feel like in Thailand, I am treated as a foreigner all of the time. Mm. And with that, I comes certain benefits, sure. Um, 
And friendliness might be one of those, right? Mm. I feel like in Vietnam, for the most part, although it still exists, you know, this kind of separation between being Vietnamese and being non-Vietnamese, that still definitely exists. I feel like for the most part, um, as a foreigner here, I'm still invited to take part in um, local activities, you know, whether it be like Tet or going to temples or mm. going to Bia Hoi or whatever it might be. Mm. I feel like I've never I've never lived in Thailand, although I visited it lots, so I can't it's not it perhaps isn't fair for me to to give a real comparison. But I feel like in in in, in I feel like or maybe this is again it's anecdotal um, these are anecdotal conversations that I've had for, with people that have lived in both countries. It feels like in Thailand, it's much more difficult to make real Thai friends that really invite you into their world. Mm. And I feel like in Vietnam, it happens in an instant. Mm. So I, I suppose what I'm what I'm saying is that I don't feel like Vietnamese people necessarily treat you as very different mm. um, as a foreigner to they would other Vietnamese people. So the flip side of that is that they're not necessarily always friendly because that lady selling fur on the street is going to be as unfriendly to you as she is to her other Vietnamese customers because that's just the way that she is. Yeah. You know? That's so true. Yeah. yeah. And I actually think I respect that about Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> There's no special treatment for foreigners. I think that there is special treatment. <laughs> there is still special treatment for foreigners, but I I think it's I think it's less palpable than in other countries. Mm. So Josh, what's your plan? Um you're leaving Vietnam soon. Do you have plans to come back? Yeah, so this is actually uh, the end of my two-week stint here. So I'm leaving in a couple of days. Mm. And I do plan on coming back. I'm still thinking about how I might do that. Um, I really enjoyed studying in the UK. And um, that may lead to pursuing a PhD, which, um, if I do do, is likely to be here in Vietnam or one of the universities here. Mm. So that's an option for the future. What would you do it in? I'd like to stay in sustainability and tourism. Mm. I'm interested in other things, branding and things like that. But I think that sustainability and tourism are, are two areas that I think are both interesting and important. And do you choose to do that in Vietnam because you love Vietnam or because you feel like um, there's a lot of potential here for sustainable tourism or a lot of work to do in sustainable tourism? All of those things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work to do. I think there's a lot of potential. Mm. And I think that the energy that we've spoken about, if that can be harnessed effectively, mm. I think that there's a lot of uh, room for Vietnam to grow into a much more sustainable destination. Mm. It's tricky, isn't it? Because it's got these growth targets, you know, huge economic growth targets, probably tourism targets as well all while trying to be net zero mm. as soon as possible before 2050. Mm. Sustainability really takes vision and long-term planning. Mm. 
Um, I, I I wonder what you think about um, the ability of of tour companies in Vietnam to to consider sustainability while still going after these growth targets, especially sort of after COVID. Mm. So studies show that there is a growing demand for sustainable tourism experiences. You can see that there's a growing demand in these experiences because there's a really clear graph, actually, in terms of what people prioritize in, in, in terms of their, tra their, their travel mm -hmm. and how that's divided among generations. So baby boomers, for example, think that sustainable tourism or traveling sustainability is a little bit important. You know, Gen Xers think it's a bit more important. Millennials think it's pretty important. Mm -hmm. And Generation Z think it's the most important, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So... There are some studies that suggest that having sustainable tourism experiences is one of the most, you know, one of the three most important things for a, for a Generation Z traveller. Mm. I mean, these studies are done in Western countries usually, so we're talking about the US or the UK, mm. places like this. Um, so, but what is, I think, also interesting is that, and some of my research has been focused on this, is that... What is even more attractive to a lot of travelers and particularly young travelers is not just experiences that are, you know, sustainable in inverted commas, mm. um, but experiences where travelers can have, can, can, uh, can understand the impact of their, um, of their time in the country, whether it be on the environment or the economy or society. Right. So... I think when it comes to travel companies in Vietnam, it's very clear that there is a lot of demand in trying to make their products more sustainable mm. and communicating them to be more sustainable. Mm. But as you know, sustainability has become a marketing buzzword. Mm. And despite what I think the media often says about travelers, I think that travelers are discerning and I think that they are looking for meaningful experiences and I think that tourism players here in Vietnam would do well to not only pursue more sustainable routes but also communicate what they're doing that is sustainable and how they're doing it and how this is impacting in different mm. ways on, you know, supporting marginalized communities or mm. conserving a natural environment. Mm. And, you know, that's not, like you said, it's not about just kind of talking about an existing tourism product in a new way, saying it's sustainable. It's really re-looking at the tourism products and sustainable products available, right? Yeah. Um, do you think that's happening in Vietnam right now? Are, are there companies going, right, hold on, what are our products? We can't just say we're sustainable. That's not going to fly. What are our actual products here right now? And what are the impacts on the environment, the, the economy and, and the wider community? Yeah, I think that there are a couple. Mm. There are a couple that are, that are, that are doing that are doing good work here. Yeah. And most of them are homegrown. Right. Um, the one that springs to mind straight away would be Oxalis Adventure in Fomnia. Mm. Um, 
And they make a point of not branding themselves as a sustainable tourism company because this is such a, a, a knotty word that people have interpreted in so many different ways. They're basically focused on just two things that they're doing, which is conserving the natural environment and providing jobs right. for local people. Mm. It's just those two things, mm. you know. And if you read their materials, that really comes across, mm. is that those are the two things that they're focused on. It's not these kind of lofty ideas about sustainability or whatever. Mm. It's just about creating jobs mm. and protecting the jungle. So they're doubling down on what they're really good at and have been good at for many years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they communicate that quite successfully, I think. And they're a successful company that's growing mm. in terms of the numbers of tourists that are visiting. Yeah. I mean, obviously, COVID put a stop to that, but mm. they're growing again now. Mm. Um, and the number of products that they have are growing too. So you're pretty hopeful then? Um, hopeful is a little bit strong. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think there is still a lot to iron out. Mm. But I definitely don't despair when it comes to Vietnamese tourism. Mm. So when do you think that will be then if you do come back to do your research here and do a PhD? Yeah, well, that might be that might be later this year. Oh, that soon. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah possibly later this year. God, we can't get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends if it depends if that's the route that I take. There are other things that I think I'm quite interested in doing as well. When I first came to Vietnam, I, I, I didn't work in travel and tourism. I was working here for a charity and. I think I'd quite like to reconnect with that charity. Um, so I'm interested in doing something like that as well. Um, I love writing guidebooks. It's um, a really, really fun job to have. Um, and I may look at pursuing something like that as well. On the subject of guidebooks, um, I've got one more question for you and that is based on your experience here um, you've done business here you know you've traveled here um, you're a travel writer you've lived and breathed Hanoi for quite a long time now or Vietnam for quite a long time what would you guide someone coming to the country let's say they've got a, a four-day business trip to Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh City what would you say they must do that perhaps isn't in the guidebooks isn't on the websites it might be in your guidebooks coming out, but, you know, something a little bit unique and... and <laughs> mm, yeah, um, <laughs> well, you really put me on the spot, especially because I don't write for business travellers. I write for leisure travellers. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, yeah. But they're, but they're people too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just about. Um, I would say that it's really important, if they're going to come to Saigon or to Hanoi, I think it's really important to try and get under the skin of these places, mm. right? Okay, so five ways of how they can do that. I think the first thing is to talk to people. Hanoi and Saigon has a incredible number of people that speak really good English and they are everywhere. Mm. And as we've discussed, Vietnamese people are very willing to talk um, on the whole. 
not everybody, but on the whole, that's that's true. So I would um, I would encourage a business traveler to remember that Hanoi or Saigon is not London or Paris or New York or perhaps Singapore. I don't know. I don't have that much experience with Singapore. But it's not one of these cities where people don't talk to each other. So, you know, if you're sat in a coffee shop and there's some young people next to you, talk to them. That's such a good point. Because <clears throat> they, they will talk back, that, right? Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, mm. That's a really good point. You could end it there, but I want, <laughs> but I want to hear more. <laughs> Four more. <laughs> Let's do two more. <laughs> Top three. Okay. Ways right, to get under three. the skin. Okay. Um, okay, the next thing is a little bit vague, but I would find something that you love about Vietnam and really make the most of that thing. So it might be food, for example. Mm. You know, maybe you're coming to Vietnam expecting really good food and you will get it. But maybe you're coming to Vietnam and you realize, oh, wow, there's amazing coffee here, Mm. for example. Not everyone has, not everyone knows about Vietnam's coffee culture. Mm. Um, Or craft beer. Yes, exactly, exactly, or, or, or craft beer scene. Um, so what I would do is encourage people to come and find something that gives them joy, you know, whether that's food or, or coffee or beer or, or architecture or anything. Yeah. Um, and really kind of dive headfirst into that, which you can do very easily over a couple of days, you know. Mm-hmm. The amount that you can eat in Hanoi or Saigon over four or five days is and the coffee you can drink <laughs> that too that too yeah um third one number three have a go driving a motorbike yeah yeah <laughs> it opens up your world in vietnam driving a motorbike yeah and i do not for one minute expect for some business traveler to come to saigon or hanoi and hop on a motorbike and Get to their different, um, get to the different meetings like that. But just having a little go on one, driving up and down the street, <laughs> talking to your sales driver who wants to practice their English, and asking them if you know you can just drive the motorbike up and down, or yeah. if your hotel has an area where you're able to drive and just yeah. just have a go. Yeah. Because very once I, I, you probably know people like I do that don't. That, that don't or didn't rather drive motorbikes in Vietnam for a long time mm. and then suddenly they do mm. and as soon as you do you never look back yeah. Yeah. and it opens up the country in a way that I think nothing else does mm. so true you can see it you can smell it um, even if okay so maybe for a business traveler then maybe it's not about necessarily getting on a bike because I'm not sure I would have got on the bike in my first couple of days here. But I, perhaps it's about not taking the grab car and taking a grab bike mm. on the back of someone's bike. Mm. Yeah. And also grab car these days means you're going to be stuck in traffic. Whereas mm. with the bike, you can just zip through and make your meeting on time. Yeah. Yes, I think that you're right. Can um, we redo that? And can I say that instead? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. I can enough. give insight too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's number three. Yeah. Don't necessarily drive a motorbike, but get on the back of a motorbike yeah. taxi at least once. At least once. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming in. I'm glad we could do this while you were here. 
Mm, well, thanks um, for inviting me. Because you're not going to be here for a, for a few more months by the sounds of it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I always do. As have I. And I'm really excited to see more of your stories, read more of your stories, and um, also see what you do in the sustainable tourism sector if you do decide to do a PhD. Um, where can people find your writing or your socials? Um, through my name, which is Joshua Zukas, Z-U-K-A-S. Mm-hmm. So I have a website portfolio, which is joshuazukas.com. Mm-hmm. I'm on Instagram as well, at Joshua Zukas. Great. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Ian. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to You Don't Know Vietnam. I'm Ian Painton from We Create Content. I'd like to thank DJ Jay from the Beat Saigon for the soundtrack and to you for making it all the way to the end. <laughs>